because it is so set in stone what a meal in a fine dining restaurant is. It's always the same kind of proteins. In a way, we were just cooking seasonal condiments. One day, the lobster was with lemon, then it was with rhubarb, then it was with onion, you know, but like the lobster remained. Today, I feel like we're cooking really fully entire meals where every ingredient on the place is of this season, is of a farm, and you can taste the weather and the farm and the terroir and all this, and it's really quite poetic. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour to the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. And welcome to the last episode of Season 8. This has been our biggest season ever, with the most episodes, the most sponsors and events, a brand new website, and a new newsletter called The Grand Tourist Curator. So I just want to take this moment to thank everyone who made The Grand Tourist possible this year. We'll be back with new episodes on February 7th. So in the meantime, make sure you sign up for The Curator at our website, thegrandtourist.net. And follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein. We'll be sharing news and original features outside of audio, so I hope you'll join us. My guest today is arguably one of the most successful chefs in America, if not the world. And also, perhaps the most daring. As the chef and owner behind the New York landmark restaurant 11 Madison Park, he's helped to redefine fine dining and raise expectations across the board. And like our other guest this season, Eve Bahar, he's a Swiss transplant who became creatively invigorated by his adopted American home, Daniel Hume. Hume first moved to San Francisco and then to New York to become the executive chef at 11 Madison Park in 2006, recruited by the famed restaurateur Danny Meyer. He purchased the restaurant from Meyer in 2011. Today, his company, called Make It Nice, runs 11 Madison Park, as well as its sister lifestyle brand, 11 Madison Home. Hume earned his first Michelin star at 24 in Switzerland. Since then, he's put 11 Madison Park not just on the map, but made it a seemingly godlike institution in the pantheon of the great restaurants of the world, famed for their extensive tasting menus that change seasonally. When the restaurant was ranked number one in the world and had three Michelin stars, the pandemic hit 11 Madison Park and indeed the entire dining world hard. And when it reopened in 2021, whom shocked the food world by announcing that his beloved restaurant was going 100% plant-based. At first, the reviews were not kind. Pete Wells in the New York Times wrote, quote, At Noma, these sauces are administered so subtly that you don't notice anything weird going on. You just think you've never tasted anything so extraordinary in your life. At 11 Madison Park, certain dishes are as subtle as a dirty martini. End quote. Ouch. But I'm sure you know where this is going. The following year, it became the first and only plant-based restaurant in the world to receive the coveted three Michelin stars. Whom is also an accomplished author, speaker, and turned 11 Madison Park during the pandemic into something of a soup kitchen. More on that later. His latest book, from art publisher Steidel, called Eat More Plants, A Chef's Journal, is filled with his own sketches and notes on plant-based cuisine and is available for pre-order now online. I caught up with Daniel from, where else? 11 Madison Park. To discuss growing up in a hippie household with an architect for a father, how the tradition of 11 Madison Park's famed granola got started, how and why he made the big leap to a plant-based menu, and what he really thinks about French fries. Well, I guess I wanted to start with him, you know, at the beginning. Um, you were 
raised in your career, career began in Switzerland before moving to the States. And I read that your father was an architect. And as a, as a design uh, journalist, that kind of got me excited. What was home life uh, like for you as a kid? was growing up in Zurich and uh, my parents had me very young uh, when they were 17 years old. So my dad was sort of like, you know, they were in school and then eventually architect school. And so I sort of saw uh, my dad uh, sort of growing into his career, which was pretty amazing because um, usually when someone has kids at a much older age, then you just sort of see the final version um you know of your parents but i really got to see how they both grew and 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 grew up which of course at times is good and bad because maybe certain things are are less stable as we moved around a lot and um and and i also had a a challenging relationship uh with my dad but um but otherwise you know it was super helpful to see just how through hard work um you can uh you know, bring it quite far and you can make a difference and create beautiful things. And uh, I read that your mother raised you to kind of revere ingredients and sort of passed on a love of, of cooking in that way. Is that correct? Like what, what are sort of your earliest memories of, of food? You know, my parents were just hippies. And, <laughs> and you know, we were eating mostly plant-based Um we ate meat very seldom, um, and then all the ingredients sort of came came from a farm and were organic. And you know, at that time, it, I always thought like the way we were living was like weird. When I sort of like was with my friends, I almost was almost embarrassed the way we were doing things, um, not realizing at that time how privileged I was, really. Um, you know, because everything was from the farm. Like I remember this one moment I was in the kitchen and we had like this marsh salad that my mom just brought home and it was raining outside and the salad was just covered with dirt and we had to wash it and wash it and wash it like five times. And I was just standing in the kitchen there and wondering like, why does it need to be this complicated? And then there was this moment where my mom, I guess, could kind of see me wandering and she would pick out this lettuce out of the cold water and she would say, you know, just taste this lettuce and see how sweet it is and the texture. And and I remember this moment, you know, to this day, and it was actually a pivotal moment. I, I sort of started to understand, um, you know, the reasons to go through great lengths to achieve, you know, very special tastes, as well as um, that amazing taste can come from the most humble things. And, you know, how you started working in a restaurant when you were 14. So I'm wondering, uh, how did that happen so young? And what was your parents' like uh, mindset? How did you wind up taking that path? Yeah, you know, the, the, the story really um, is that I, I left school when I was 14 years old and, and um, I, w- I was pursuing a career as a professional cyclist. And um, my parents were not excited about this idea. And my dad was sort of saying, look, if you make this decision, um, you're kind of on your own financially. And um, and so, you know, I was quite rebellious at that time. So I was like, okay, fine, you know, I got this. 
And the only job I could find uh, as a 14 year old was in a kitchen. And then, you know, I, I, I continued to ride my bike and race my bike and I continued to work in kitchens. And I was lucky that I found um, a mentor uh, who was actually giving me much more than a job, but also an education a little bit in the kitchen. And, uh, and when I was, when I was 22, I, I had an accident, uh, riding my bike and, um, you know, was in the hospital for a while. And, and at that time I was sort of laying there and I was like, wow, what is my future? Um, and maybe my future is in the kitchen and not on the bike. Um, I was also not, I was a good cyclist, but I wasn't the best. And, uh, you know, it's a very competitive environment and it's dangerous. And, and so I sort of took the athlete's mentality towards uh, the profession of cooking. I wanted to work for the best. I wanted to be the best. I wanted to win awards and rankings and so forth. So at that moment, I decided that I would climb this sort of mountain of this culinary mountain of, of chasing Michelin stars and Sagat ratings and number one spot in the world eventually. But um, yeah, very much from an athlete's winning was was important. Was there ever a period in your career where you thought hmm, maybe cycling would have been easier? <laughs> um, you know, the truth is that in a way, like uh, cooking often felt like an endurance sport as well. Mm. And um, I, I think being an athlete for all these years, like I was running cross country when I was start, when I was ten years old, and then you know was cycling. So like many many years of of, of being an athlete, I think has really conditioned me to 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 be strong on this on this path. And you, of course, you got to be mentally strong, but also like kitchen cooking is quite physical too. So it doesn't hurt to be also you know in good physical health. As, as you're doing these long days, you know, in, in the kitchen. And um, tell me about that first boss you had uh, in the kitchen and, and what that restaurant was like and kind of like what you learned there. You know, it was a, a traditional sort of hotel kitchen, like a grand hotel in Switzerland uh, with a lot of chefs and, and quite traditional uh, cuisine. Um, you know, I just learned like the most simple task, like how to make a consomme. I, I thought it was such a magical thing, how to make a consomme, like first how to make a stock and then to clarify that stock. And it becomes like this essence of like, it felt like liquid gold at that time, you know, it just felt magical or, or you know, or how to, you know, peel an artichoke or how to tourney a carrot or, um, you know, and, you know, even how to butcher a chicken and all these things, um, felt quite magical eggs, like learning about eggs and everything you can do with an egg, making a souffle, like how magical that souffle arises up and it's just magical. And I'm, I'm very grateful that I was in this very sort of classic, uh, restaurant because I think I really gave me a good sense of what the foundation is. Before we return to the program, a word from our sponsor, Lumens. We're living in a golden age of design, where architects, interior designers, and esthetes 
have access to nearly every brand in the world. As this magazine veteran knows all too well, a trusted source is essential to any successful design story. That's where Lumens comes in. As the preeminent destination for grand tourist-worthy lighting, furniture, and accessories, Lumens carries designs from more than 400 global brands. With in-house service and account specialists that are your personal connection to good design, Lumens curates authentic designs that run the gamut from iconic pieces to of-the-moment exclusives by designers fans of this podcast will certainly recognize, like Pierre Lissoni, Philippe Stark, and Colin King. As I'm sure this week's guest, Daniel Hume, would certainly agree, there's no well-designed home without the right kitchen cabinets filled with amazing objects you'll use every day. And Lumen supplies you with everything you'll need. Tea and coffee gadgets from Alessi, minimalist wine accessories from Blomus, or dozens of placement options in different colors and designs from Chilowich. To elevate your elegant holiday buffet or midweek takeout dinner into a feast for the eyes, visit lumens.com. That's L-U-M-E-N-S dot com. Before we return to Daniel Hume, a word from our sponsor, Janice AC. In the world of design, an appreciation for the outdoors is more important in our lives than ever before. Enter Janice AC. As a leader in outdoor furniture for 45 years, the brand combines unparalleled levels of craft and engineering to create works by the world's best designers and architects, from Philippe Stark and Paolo Novone to Patrizia Urquiola. But beyond the incredible products and designs, Janice AC provides a level of service and expertise that's always best in class. Our guest today, Daniel Hume, might serve cutting-edge cuisine, but he serves it in a classic Art Deco setting at 11 Madison Park one of New York's most enduring and beloved dining rooms. And since dining outdoors is no longer simply the purview of hot dogs and potato salad, elevated furniture pieces are a must. Janice AC has dozens of chairs, tables, and accessories to make the perfect evening. You might want something a little classic like 11 Madison Park, or you might want something more contemporary like the Aries Collection, where clean line designs are achieved with a tactile back in beautifully constructed rope and you'd be an excellent company. The designs from Janice AC are also found in some of the best restaurants and hotels around the world, such as the Eden Rock Restaurant at the Hotel du Cap, subject of one of our podcasts, by the way, and a must-listen, as well as Caruso's at Rosewood Miramar Beach in California and the restaurant at the legendary Hotel Bel Air in L.A. To step up your summer outdoor dining experience to the Michelin-starred level, Make an appointment at your local Janus AC showroom or visit JanusAC.com. That's J-A-N-U-S-E-T-C-I-E.com. And from there, was that when you went to San Francisco? I received a phone call uh, from a Swiss hotelier who was running a hotel in San Francisco, uh, sort of out of the blue. And uh, he said um, he was a friend of one of our regular guests uh, at the restaurant that I was working at. And um, he said, uh, I'm looking for a chef. And uh, he heard great things about me. And he would love to invite me to San Francisco to come and, and look at the opportunity. And I was in shock because I never been to America at that point. And uh, I never really thought of America as like this culinary destination. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't on my radar at all. 
But that being said, I was so young and I was in the middle of nowhere in Switzerland. I knew I didn't want to be there for the rest of my life. So I took him up on this opportunity. And when I arrived in San Francisco, he personally picked me up from the airport. And I remember everything looked different. Everything smelled different. But also the sky looked different. And, and, and even the sky looked like it was much more open and wider and, and, and full of opportunities. And then the next day we went to the ferry building and we went to the farmer's market and I saw all these artisans and cheesemakers and, and farmers and, and, uh, and the, the, the bounty of, of, uh, of the ingredients. And then the following day we went to Napa Valley and we ate at, um, on the way there, we ate at Chez Panis, and then that evening we ate at the French Laundry, and we were in the wine country, and my mind was just completely blown, and um, I felt like there was this energy around around food and around fine dining in a way that felt fresh and different than what I felt in Europe, and, and within the first three days, I knew that I wanted to take on this opportunity, and a few months later, um, I quit my job and I packed up my things, which wasn't very much. It was really two suitcases. And I came uh, to San Francisco uh, on a student visa. So definitely in a way, like people talk about the American dream. I mean, I, you know, I, I feel like that was my American dream coming with two suitcases, a skill, but but not even speaking the language and uh, you know I didn't know where this would lead and how how long I I could stay, but um, you know I'm actually uh, now this year in May uh, I hit the 20 year mark of being in this country and uh, yeah it's just been an incredible journey and when when you pack up your things and you have two suitcases and that's all you have. There is something very powerful about that. Something very freeing. Um, it's so beautiful when you're when you're young and you can do that. And uh, yeah, I, I I treasure that moment, and I'm glad I took that kind of leap of faith into this new place. And it was a uh, Campton Place was where you worked that in San Francisco. Exactly. Can you yeah. ex- can you explain to the listener what that place was and and what the food was like? Campton Place was is a hotel. It was a family-owned hotel uh, right off Union Square in San Francisco downtown, and uh, it had sort of like it was sort of like a boutique hotel. It was run by a Swiss general manager. The chef there before was a French chef. It had a pretty intimate sort of dining room, and I didn't know all this, but but it had a history of of. American chefs sort of coming through uh, the doors there over the years. Uh, so in a way, like the moment I stepped foot in that kitchen and I started cooking, people started paying attention. Like the critics started paying attention. The foodies started paying attention. And um, everything, again, happened so quickly, I remember um, nominated for Rising Star Chef by the James Beard Foundation. I was only three months in the country. And I was sort of like, oh, what is this? The James Beard Foundation. And then people said like, oh, no, no, that's a good thing. You should probably go. And at that point, I've never been to New York. And 
then I was invited to go to the awards in New York, and that was the first time I, I, I was in New York. And uh, I mean, for me, it was clear the moment I arrived in New York, the energy and and uh, you know the diversity and and the city. I I knew eventually I I had to find my way here. I ended up being in San Francisco for two and a half years. We had you know great success. Um, we ended up having four stars by the San Francisco Chronicle, which was the highest accolade at that time you could have there. And uh, and from then on, you know, Danny Meyer, who owns the Union Square Hospitality Group and is a great, uh, you know, restaurateur, one of the great restaurateurs, um, he recruited me to become uh, the chef of 11 Madison Park that at that point was um, a brasserie serving steak frites and seafood towers. But um, he had this vision of, you know, together we could make this into one of the great dining rooms in the world. What was that conversation like with him? Was he just, uh, I mean, what was that first sit down? Like, how how do you, how does one do that? Well, at first, um, Danny called me and he said, well, he just had dinner at Campton Place and um, I have a restaurant in New York City called 11 Madison Park and, you know, I'm looking for a chef and I think you are the chef I I want for this project. Um, I should come visit. And did you have like something in your mind that you were a fantasy of how you were going to pull that off? I was so scared. Like first, you know, again, I'm still in the country quite new and I didn't know who all the players were. I actually didn't know who Danny Meyer was. And I started asking around and everyone obviously sang his praises. And so then, yeah, I I came to visit New York and I was so scared because at that point there was a brasserie and it did like 400 covers a night and I'm coming from a three Michelin star fine dining sort of background. I've never seen a restaurant that does 400 covers a night. So it was like so overwhelming. Um, Obviously it's not why I I was um, being recruited. Obviously the idea was to change that, but, but still seeing that was like so scary. And then of course, I also thought about, you know, other chefs who have come to New York like I was a noble name chef at that point, but, you know, I was aware of Alain Ducasse coming to New York and sort of like not having the best experience and, and, and then also being kind of like, the New Yorkers can be tough, you know, I think. I, I, I was aware of that when you come to New York, you got to really make sure you have the best sort of foundation and team and platform so you can really be successful because when you're not, you rarely get a second chance in New York City. And for me, it was so important to end up in New York that I really wanted to make sure that my first step into the city was in the most perfect situation. And I interviewed with Danny uh, for over 10 months and we met many, many times. And eventually I, I believed in the opportunity, but but what really got me here is that I felt like I I could trust this man, that everything he's saying 
you know, comes from a place of, of knowing and knowing what it will take because it took a lot to, you know, eventually where, where we arrived. And, and I have to say that, um, you know, I could have not asked for a better mentor, partner, supporter, um, because he was definitely uh, very, very supportive. And in 2010, uh, 11 Madison Park got one Michelin star, uh, but one year later it got three, which is the highest possible. <laughs> so I'm curious, like, what was, did you have some sort of plan of action after that first year where you went from, how does one go from one to three to how did that, what was that year like? Yeah, you know, I, I actually think this may be the only time in the in the Michelin history that a restaurant went from one to three. It was came as a total shock. Honestly, I didn't even know something like that existed. Well, clearly it didn't. You know, the awards, as I said earlier, I, I, I the awards were important to me. I I um I had my eyes on those awards and on all of them, even the small ones. You know, I felt like I wanted to win them all. And I thought it was very helpful to be motivated by and to motivate the team to, and it's measurable. So it actually really, really works. Even though intellectually, I understood that all of these awards, it's all kind of silly. Mm. It's all kind of this like silly race and it's controversial and, you know, who is really the best or who gets to really say, oh, this is the three star and this is the two star. But but I always looked at them as these little carrots in front of me. Uh, it gave kind of like direction. And uh, yeah, we were, you know, really going after them. So when we got from one to three star, I mean, that was um, an incredible moment. I mean, it's it's every definitely every, every European chef's dream. It's a dream so big you're scared to think about, but to reach three stars, it's it's the pinnacle of, of fine dining. But in, and, that, uh, in that year, you didn't make any changes to sort of happened. You didn't say, okay, we got one and I'm gonna have a, I have a checklist of things I'd like to improve in the kitchen or I have new ideas I wanna try. Or is it just sort of, well, the next time you got a letter or a call or however it happens and it just or did it just sort of happen? I would say, I mean, I, I, I think we were working very, very hard on, you know, improving and improving and improving the restaurant. I remember in end of 2009, after the financial crisis, we got our first four star review in The New York Times, which is the highest accolade for, for The New York Times. And so we're definitely on the track to refining things and getting better and better and i think each year was was definitely monumental in 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 our growth especially from you know where we were coming from i mean we were a restaurant serving steak frites eventually getting three michelin stars and you know we never closed we sort of like just changed as as we were going the moment we took the french fries off the menu it, it was like a big moment. I mean, we got letters complaining uh, and telling that this will be the end of this restaurant and this restaurant will, you know, go out of business because we took away the French fries. Um, so, so the changes were quite monumental each year. And um, I guess that's sort of a, there are certain traditions um, at 11 Madison Park. Um, 
I, <laughs> I, I know you, you you recently launched uh, Eleven Madison Home, where you can sell things from the restaurant, like the famous granola, and um, <laughs> which maybe might you be your next French fries if you ever <laughs> remove the granola. Um, how do these like little traditions get started? Let's. I'm just fascinated. Like, how did the granola start? Of all the things, you wouldn't think that a a three Michelin star restaurant would be so renowned for as it's granola. But um, tell me about that. You know, like most restaurants of, of, of our caliber, at the end of the meal, um, you, you get something to take home, mm-hmm. um, like more food. Mm-hmm. Um, but the truth is by the end of, you know, most of those meals, you don't really want to think about more food. And you don't want to go home and eat, you know, often you get a box of chocolate or you get a, a brioche that's filled with butter. And like, it's all the things you really don't feel like in that very moment, even though they are very delicious. Um, and for me, it was like, I wanted to come up with something that you could take home and you could eat maybe not even the next morning, but maybe three mornings from then, but they would sort of remind you mm-hmm. of the experience you had. And um, growing up in Switzerland, like muesli and granola is sort of part of my childhood. And so I thought it would be an amazing thing to create this granola that then people would take home and they can eat it, you know, even weeks after their experience. Um, and it became uh, you something people really cherish and look forward to. And people always ask us, you know, can we buy it? And for a long time, we didn't uh, sell it. But then we decided during the pandemic that we would launch 11 Madison Home with, you know, we're selling the granola, we're selling other things we're using in the kitchen, like, you know, also things we're doing from our farm, like pickles and things and spice mixes and we're teaching certain recipes and then selling everything you need for it, but sort of like just bringing 11 Madison Park into people's home and make it a little bit more accessible. Before we return to the program, a word from our sponsor, Material Bank. As you know, I've been a design journalist for 20 years, and in that time, I visited dozens of designer studios. Sure, it's fun seeing where architects work and such and sketch, but my favorite part of the tour is always the Material Library. As any designer knows, finding, sourcing, and keeping track of samples is a major undertaking and a major headache. But there's no discipline of design without a keen knowledge and access to great and innovative materials. That's where Material Bank comes in. As the fastest and most sustainable platform to search, sample, and specify materials, it's become an indispensable tool. On Material Bank, you can search more than 500 brands in seconds, connect with reps, get vital specs in an instant, and most importantly, get those samples in hand overnight. It's the most sustainable way of pulling samples from around the world, and everything comes in one box. And it's more than just a place to browse, it's a connective network that's powering the design world to create amazing things. As our guest today, Daniel Hume, will certainly agree with, materials are everything, even with food. Just like Daniel knows the suppliers, farmers, and vintners, it's remarkable how similar our conversations are between a chef and a designer. In many ways, their levels of thinking are the same, and there's no reaching the top of the class without that eye for materials. It should tell you something about the world of creativity, no? 
It's free for designers to join, so go online to become a member today at materialbank.com. Before we return to Daniel Hume, a word from our sponsor, Fort Street Studio. For more than 25 years, Fort Street Studio has been creating enduring carpet designs and heirloom qualities that are hand-woven and hand-knotted in beautiful fiber combinations that are luxurious yet natural and renewable. As pioneers of the painterly, non-repeating aesthetic and modern rug design, originating from watercolor art, the creative team at Fort Street Studio continues to honor the artists and artisans of the past while innovating for the future. The brand services a global clientele from its newly renovated flagship showroom in Manhattan, where their team of specialists guide interior designers, architects, and collectors through the studio's offerings. The legendary outfit has an extensive catalog where each design can be customized endlessly, but they also carry stock carpets in standard sizes. As the offerings of Fort Street Studio are so expertly hand-knotted, photos rarely do these works of art justice. That's why an in-person consultation is so key. Only then can the subtleties of rug design and its colors truly come to life. To book your own consultation, visit fortstreetstudio.com. And would you say that for 11 Madison Park, that there's a kind of a method that someone, you know, who maybe have worked for you, but maybe has worked for other people as well, would say that, you know, this is the way that you put together a menu? How is the how is the sort of the the Daniel Hume way of putting together a menu? I mean, you know, a kitchen like ours has has very high standards. We take a lot of pride in in our techniques, in our craft, and so like everything comes sort of from this foundation of the craft. But then also creativity uh, plays a big part in it. Um, we had we, we sort of have four principles that we use to um, create our our dishes and and when we created the dish we sort of like ask ourselves the questions do do does this dish fulfill uh, these four principles and and um, number one uh, is is um, is is the dish beautiful and um, beauty is sort of like we're we're, we're looking for sort of like an, an effortless beauty, then, you know, is the dish delicious? And we're looking for um, a deliciousness that is instantly, like when you need to think about, was this delicious or is it not? Then it probably wasn't. It should be instant. And then uh, the third point is creativity, because we want to add something, you know, in the conversation of, of culinary evolution, is there an element of surprise? Is there a different flavor combination or is there a technique that's used differently? And then the last one is sort of like, we want the dish to be intentional, that it makes sense that it exists and it could be as simple as a story as two ingredients grown next to each other on a farm or it could take uh, a reference from a traditional dish or being inspired by an artist from another uh, genre. So these are sort of our four pillars. Um, creativity and deliciousness don't always go hand in hand. So sometimes we really have to edit ourselves, like when we feel like, oh, wow, that's really creative, but it's not that delicious. So then we will throw it out and you know, sort of start from scratch. Um, but even when I look 
you know, outside of the plate. Um, in a way, it's also kind of the life I want to live, where it's, you know, beautiful, delicious, creative, intentional. Um, so those aspects have actually become much more than only about creating a dish, but how do we live our lives? How do we run our restaurants? How do we create our, our company culture? And and speaking of company culture, um, the name of the company is Make It Nice, but it's also somewhat of a motto. And I'm, um, I've had a hard time kind of pinning down on my research, like exactly how, what you mean by make it nice. And, and is that more of an inside uh, phrase or does it actually have like a very distinct meaning for, for the company in the kitchen? Yeah, you know, when I first moved here, um, I didn't really speak English. And so make it nice was something I would just say a lot. And so it became kind of this slogan, uh, became the name of our company. But then also when I think about it today, um, so making is very much the craft of what we do. And then the nice part um, is sort of the hospitality element of it. And we always gave equal weight to both, uh, you know, and, and, and so I think it was kind of like a perfect name uh, for our company because we always looked at, you know, the dining room as important as the kitchen. Um, but but coming out of the pandemic, you know, for the last 25 years, we've been sort of like making it nice. But coming out of the pan pandemic, we really feel that now um, we need to make it matter. Um, you know, everything has to have a higher purpose than winning Michelin stars. And in 2017, our restaurant became the best restaurant in the world. And at that time, there really was not another award that we didn't receive. And that could feel like, oh my God, that's amazing. Like that must feel so great. But the reality was, it was actually quite disorienting because we didn't really know what is next. And it was hard to find what that next North Star is. And it took many years. I started, I co-founded an organization called Rethink Food. That was sort of like a step into the right direction. Um, but but I was personally struggling uh, finding the next meaning because I was still very young. I, I am still very young. And I knew my career was going to be like another 30 years. The pandemic happened. And during the pandemic, we turned in 11 Madison Park into a community kitchen. We started cooking meals for people in need. I started like getting to know New York City in a way I never did. I visited neighborhoods I never spent much time in. I connected with beautiful people. Um, I, I reconnected with cooking, with food, how it can make a difference in people's lives, how magic food is, the power of food, how it touches everyone. And then, you know, when we, when we sort of uh, knew that we were going to reopen the restaurant, which at some point in the pandemic, it wasn't clear. We were facing bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. We didn't know how we could reopen this restaurant. We didn't know how to pay the rent that was for the last two years that we had no income. We didn't know how to pay our staff. And then, you know, our landlord was, was um, 
really great and came to me and said, you know, we, we want to help you reopen and, and uh, we're here for you. The city needs you, you know. So then when I sort of put my creative hat back on, I knew that I didn't want to open the same restaurant as before. I knew that creatively the world does not need another preparation on a butter poached lobster or on a lavender glazed duck. So I felt like I had a responsibility to use this platform and this craft and sort of pivot in a new direction and really, you know, explore plant-based cooking and show the world how beautiful and how magical it it all can be. And were people just sort of uh, thinking you were crazy for, for doing that at that moment? I mean, I'm curious, did you have a lot of pushback? <laughs> you know, it really came from a creative place. I just know, I mean, you go to a dairy aisle, to a dairy section in a supermarket now, you're lost. I'm lost. I don't know what is dairy anymore or what's not dairy or not milk or this or that, cheese, not cheese, not cheese. You don't know. You're lost. <laughs> I feel I feel better if you don't know, if you don't, if you're confused, then I feel uh, a little bit validated. <laughs> I am. I th- everyone must be lost. So, and you know, with the meat alternatives and all this stuff is happening, clearly the, the big industri- industrial giants have realized that we need to have another solution to feed the planet because we're actually running out of resources and the food system is is collapsing. So I think the investors have realized it, the big food giants have realized it, the scientists have realized it, but what about taste? Is anyone worrying about how these things taste and, and how they make you feel? Are they even healthy? So I felt like as a chef, I wanted to contribute, figuring out how to bring, you know, taste to all of this. And uh, I decided um, I wanted to open the restaurant as a plant-based restaurant because we have a restaurant where people come for an experience. So in my head, it was like, well, does it really matter what it is that's on the plate? It's not like we're selling steak and now we're selling carrots. We've always sold an experience. So in my head, I was like, "That this is this is why it's going to work." And uh, but it was so scary. And you know, when the reservations first went live, I didn't know if anyone would call and are people going to pay this price for a fully plant-based meal. And I was also not prepared for it hit such a nerve globally. Our decision that then all of a sudden it became political, it became about climate, it became about all these things. I was not prepared, I just wanted to use my creativity. I love vegetables and I knew that we needed to put our creativity towards eating them. And uh, that was it. And oh man, the last two years, it's been a wild ride. And uh, you know, I've been criticized uh, so much and, at the same time, I was been invited to speak at the UN, at at uh, COP26, at Global Citizen, and so it's been like this mixed kind of bag of things. Clearly, um, it has really um, pushed um, people to have this conversation, which I'm really happy about it. 
but in my own industry also at times I feel like I've become this kind of outsider um, because I think people feel like I almost turned my back towards you know what what we were doing before and what other chefs are doing which is not at all the truth mm. I just felt like we had this opportunity to make something new to create a new restaurant and and when you have when you make a big shift like that are you able to shift some of the people in the kitchen who have specific skills into now 18 different shades of of working with vegetables is there a lot like a is there a kind of almost like a retraining that needs to happen um in terms of making such a radical shift at that level of course it it is creating like a new language and i think there's a lot of fear at first that i personally had to overcome and then every chef has to overcome and every server and everyone involved in in our restaurant has to overcome and even our guests but, um, because at first it feels like this is going to be very limiting and we're leaving a lot behind and we're leaving traditions behind and um you know and as a chef even when you have perfected working with fish or something like and now you're only going to cook vegetables you know you, you leave all that skill behind at first that's what you're thinking uh, but it's not true because all of that knowledge will help you also cooking with vegetables and what felt limiting at first today i know it's been beyond expanding and i know that actually before we were limited because it is so set in stone what a meal in a fine dining restaurant is it's always the same kind of proteins in a way we were just cooking seasonal condiments to them one day the lobster was with lemon then it was with rhubarb then it was with onion you know but like the lobster remained every single meal there was the lobster today i feel like we're cooking really fully entire meals where every ingredient on the place is of this season is of a farm and you can taste the weather and the farm and the terroir and all this and it's really quite poetic also um, i just ate at the restaurant the other day with some friends and and you know it was just i i highly recommend to every chef to eat in their own restaurants because it's a very different experience when you sit down and um, it just felt so beautiful to have this kind of experience and also knowing that no life was taken to to have this meal mm. and there's something really moving about this and i've cooked with meat my entire career but but there is it's impossible not to notice that um, to sit through a meal and have these pleasures and and it is quite poetic and uh, so even I felt pretty moved um, being in my own restaurant having this experience and are were you were you vegan before or after or, uh, personally I I was not vegan before I always was very much planned forward and I'm not vegan today um i am very close to it but you know when i go also what's beautiful now it's like we're taking inspiration 
from the entire world in a way we never have because other cultures have actually cooked plant-based for hundreds and hundreds of years. So there's rich culture on plant-based eating in Japan, in India, and you know, in the Middle East. And, and um, so we're taking inspirations from a lot of different places. And when I do travel to those places, I do want to experience all the dishes that are traditionals. And uh, because I think for me to be creative, I want to kind of understand it all. And um, yeah, uh, I do eat meat or fish on rare occasions, but only in the moments where, where I feel like I, I get to taste something truly original or traditional. And and now, I mean, obviously, since sourcing ingredients is such a, a huge part of the game, is it, I'm curious, as the world of food has evolved, and um, especially in the States, and what people's expectations are and what's available, is sourcing um, ingredients for you, would you say, now in 2023, harder than it was maybe in 2010? Uh, or is it easier because there's maybe there's more out there and it's easier to get things? I think because it's all vegetables on the plate now, I think, you know, picking the vegetables at the right moment, I think is gotten much more important and crucial. Um, during the pandemic, um, we started a farm upstate with a friend of mine who um, is farming now on like six acres, um, just purely for 11 Madison Park. And I think that is a great, you know, asset, for example, um, right now on the menu, we have these sunflower hearts, like he's growing this special kind of sunflowers where we're uh, eating, you know, just the hearts of sunflowers, something you can't really get anywhere. Um, or we're growing cell too. So I, I think the farm has, has given us a little bit of an advantage um, because I think, you know, we don't want to just give you carrots and and celery and fennel and all the things you know, but we do also want to bring you some elements of, you know, things you maybe have never seen before and, and that are surprising. And what were, what's maybe the most surprising or exotic uh, plant uh, that, that you've brought in so far? Um, you know, we work with um, almost only local ingredients, uh, but during the pandemic, we worked with um, a, a Zen Buddhist monk. Uh, because, you know, the, the Buddhist cuisine called Shojin is, is uh, very, very old and it's fully plant-based. And it's also, you know, a ritual of, of eating in a Buddhist temple and it's really poetic and really beautiful. And so I knew that, uh, it, in fact, it, it is um, the original Japanese cuisine. Like, it, this is where you know, the Kaiseki cuisine was born out of. That was completely plant-based. Only in recent years has been meat and fish added. Um, and uh, so so we, we have one ingredient in the restaurant that um, is from Japan, that we're getting uh, from Japan. And it's this um, called tanburi. And it's, uh, it's the seed from the cypress tree. And... Uh, it's this beautiful ingredient that we cook in a pressure cooker with seaweed, um, but it just has this beautiful texture. And uh, it's just been really exciting to explore so many 
you know, different things. And you have your your first ever art book coming out called Eat More Plants. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. uh, uh, why an art book and, and, and tell me about about what it's like. What can we expect? You know, I've been, yeah, I've been asked so much about this question, you know, how it all happened to go plant-based and, uh, and, 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 you know, it's, it's hard to give you the answer in, in one sentence or, or, or even in, in more sentences because it, it didn't happen overnight. It sort of happened over time. Um, clearly the pandemic, uh, made me, um, you know, have the courage to do it because during the pandemic, um, I felt like I was lo almost losing everything. Like I didn't know if there ever is going to be 11 Madison Park again, and we're facing bankruptcy and, and sort of like from that place, making this decision, uh, sort of felt like, well, we had nothing to lose. Let's try something else. Um, but during the pandemic and, and even my entire career, but I always keep journals. And in my journals are drawings and I paint with oil and, uh, and I take notes. But during the pandemic, it was all about the sort of the theme of vegetables and, and the fears of opening the fears and possibilities as well. Like there was fear and, and, and hope and, and dream and, and sort of like I, I wrote uh, the journal uh, or I, I, I kept the journal during the pandemic and, I had this amazing uh, publisher from Germany visit our restaurant. His name is Gerhard Steidel. And uh, he's published some of the, you know, most important art books of Richard Serra or Joseph Boyce or Ed Rocher or Ronnie Horn. And, and uh, he came to the restaurant and he was really moved by the experience. And then he asked me about my creative process and how I work. and. I said, you know, I, I journal and I paint and I draw and, and he, he asked me if he could see it. And sure enough, uh, the next morning he showed up in my office and uh, wanted to see my journal and, and my journal I've never shared with any, anyone because it's so personal. And uh, so I felt kind of like nervous about it. It's also not an art book. This is just my journal to be clear. Uh, this was never even meant to be shared with the world, but then he saw it and he really loved it. And he, you know, encouraged me to make a book together. And, um, and so then I went to Germany and I went there for a few weeks on two trips and, uh, we created this book, um, but it's really publishing my journal. It's sort of like the most intimate personal look into the earliest, you know, days of, of having this idea. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, when, when people were quite critical of the shift to, to the, to a vegan model, and then later on when you had so much success, did you have other chefs or restaurateurs reach out to you to say, how did you do it? Or, uh, you know, how do I convince my boss to, to, to do this or my, my, uh, the person who owns my restaurant, you know, how to do make that shift. You know, I don't think we have quite gotten there. I think um, I do, you know, see that our our move has has definitely changed things. Like I, I think it has allowed more other restaurants to have more plant-based options. Like now, you know, when you go to a coffee shop, almost every coffee shop here in the area 
you know, their default milk in a cappuccino is oat milk. That that didn't happen a year ago. That really recently happened. And 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 so when when I start seeing these kind of differences, I do know that we are part in this. We are. I'm not taking credit for this, but but we are part of this 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 movement um, that is is quite powerful, and, and hopefully we're gaining more and more sort of like mass. Um, I I think. You know, I, I, I think within my own industry, and that's been challenging for me because I think my industry felt maybe threatened in some ways. I, 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 I know that people have talked, you know, behind my back and probably are happy when we get a bad review. And, you know, because I think if this path eventually is going to work out, then I think it's going to put a lot more pressure on other restaurants to kind of change their ways also. And, and change can be scary. And I understand that. So it's almost like for the moment, I think I'm very much kind of a, an outsider. Um, and, and it feels like I, I maybe turned my back on my industry, which, you know, is not at all how I feel, but I, I, I understand how people can, see it that way. And when it comes to this kind of shift in thinking, is it also, what are you, what sort of vibe are you getting from young chefs that come to you uh, and cooks and, and, and sous chefs and people like that, that want to learn from you? Do they come, do you think that they are just out of the gate, you know, maybe a little bit more knowledgeable than you were, you know, in the beginning of your career? Like how are those, these young chefs, are they a different class of do they understand food in a different way than maybe you did a hundred percent i mean that's what's so encouraging you know i i i think it is it is well plant-based eating is the future um this is not a trend this is not going away we have to change the way we eat we have to reduce you know how much meat we eat and and i say this all the time but we're not anti-meat but we are pro-planet and um, and seeing the young generation worry about the planet and their future, I think they're much more on board with this idea and they celebrate it. And even uh, our customers, um, the age of our customers has gone down tremendously and it's beautiful and it's the guests are more diverse and are more, you know, question things and, and are more knowledgeable in some ways even. And uh, no, there's, you know, we're, I think we're quite, you know, we're, we're like right there. We're like, you know, when you, when you make a change, you want to be sort of like, you know, you want to be one step kind of ahead, but you don't want to be two step ahead because then you miss everyone. And I think we're like right between like, uh, on some days we're like right one step ahead where we want to be. And then on other days we maybe are a little bit too forward thinking. But, but I think we're right there. And I think I think the sort of mass around this is building, the excitement about plant-based eating is building. And by the way, this future is amazing. It's more beautiful to eat plant-based. It's more creative. It's healthier. It's all these things. Like we're not leaving anything behind. We don't need to um, be sad about it, that we're not eating pork and duck and all these things anymore. And And even if we eat it sometimes, we're also saying like, you know, this 
in such a changing world that's changing so rapidly, I think it's really important that we celebrate change, even though we don't get it perfect every step of the way. But change is necessary, and it's about progress and not perfection. You know, like I was invited to speak at Nike, the sustainability conference. And Nike, by the way, is such a tremendous company and they're so forward thinking and, you know, sustainability is like central in the, in the creativity from day one. I mean, it's just so inspiring to be there. But, but they don't even talk too much about it because aspects of their company, you know, is not as sustainable as it could be. So if they're talking about sustainability, you know, then the naysayers come and take them down and say like, oh, but what about here? Or what about that? Or what about this? And I think that's what's a little bit broken with our world, that we are not celebrating change. We are more looking for faults. And I think we definitely, you know, experience this. Like, for example, at the beginning, we, we have a restaurant and then we also have a private dining room. And in our private, di we also have a bit. We also have a business that we need to run. And 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 if we actually don't have customers, then our whole idea is going to be meaningless and will not matter at all. Mm. If our restaurant closes, all our plant-based talk will not be important at all. No one will remember. So of course, when we reopened, you know, we wanted to. We knew we'd take a big risk, but we also wanted to limit our risk in some ways. And, and in our private dining room, um, we also had certain events from pre-pandemic. And so we said, you know, let's start in the restaurant and let's go all the way in the restaurant, fully plant-based, no animal product. But let's, in our private dining room, let's don't change yet. Let's see how this is going. And sure enough, you know, we reopened the restaurant and after two weeks, like people kind of came at us and say like, oh, but what about in the private dining room? And and yeah, it's complicated. And, you know, we've been sort of weathering the storm and, 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 and thankfully it has been successful. And, and thankfully we have transitioned our restaurant all to plant-based eating. But, you know, the, the, the future might be the future restaurant might not be 100% plant-based. It might be just much more thoughtful. Mm. It might be plant forward, you know, like for example, oysters. Oysters are not harmful to the environment. So maybe oysters are okay. Maybe there is some incredible trout farm that everything is sustainable and maybe that's okay. Like I think the future will be close to plant-based but but somewhere in the middle mm. and uh but at 11 madison park you know 11 madison park has never been the, your average restaurant it has always been sort of the pinnacle to something so we just felt like to go all the way with this platform was was the right way but i think um it's probably always somewhere in the middle it's never the extreme and I guess uh, as now that you're plant-based, uh, uh, any French fries? Had the French fries made a return? Well, not on our menu, <laughs> but 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 I have to say, a French fries is a guilty pleasure. Um, <laughs> a, a good French fries 
it, it's very, very satisfying. Thank you to our guest, Daniel Hoon, and to Becca Parrish and everyone at 11 Madison Park for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, don't forget to visit our new website and sign up for our newsletter, The Grand Tourist Curator, at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen, and leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next season. Till next season.